Amen. You guys still feeling fired up this morning? You didn't get uh, too full on the appetizer and on the salad, did you? You guys still hungry? Amen. Well, it is so good to be here this morning. I do want to he- give a huge thank you to uh, both Isaiah and Liz, uh, as well as Kirk, for sharing for the contribution. What an incredible, incredible job they did. Let's give them another hand. Amen. You know, one of the, one of the words that gets tossed around a lot in our society is the word great. You may say, man, I had a, a great breakfast this morning. Or, wow, those donuts in the back of church, man, they were just some great donuts. You, you might say, uh, I went on a great date last night, like I did with my beautiful wife, amen? You may say, I have a great family, or I have a great job, amen? But this morning, we're going to be talking about building a great church. You know, this morning we begin our study on the book of Acts. And for those that are visiting, this is something that we try to do every year, and typically it's at the conclusion of our first principles class. And so for those that are in first principles class, we've already covered a large section of the book of Acts, and now we're going to be branching into some of those other areas of the book of Acts that we haven't covered. Amen? And as we go through this morning, I just want you to ask yourself one question. If everyone... We're just like me. What kind of church would this be? Let's begin our study in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. You know, we find right here in Acts that Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, writes in verse 1, in my former book. Well, which book did Luke write before he wrote the book of Acts? The book of Luke, amen? And so we find right here that the book of Acts is now a second part to the book of Luke. In fact, some scholars call the book of Acts Luke 2 or 2nd Luke. He says in my former book, the book of Luke, Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is not a person, per se. Theo means God in Greek, and Phyllis means friend. And so he goes, in my former book, to all friends of God. Do we have any friends of God here this morning? He says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach uh, until he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles. That's exactly what the book of Luke is all about. Verse 3. After his suffering or his crucifixion, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He was resurrected. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while he was eating with them, He gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So now the disciples are starting to understand what Jesus was referring to, although they didn't quite get it because they thought that Jesus was trying to establish a physical kingdom and not a spiritual kingdom. Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Our first point this morning is a great 
Commission. You know, here we find as Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection, the only thing that Jesus wanted to speak about was the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus, come on, Jesus. I mean, we've been talking so much about the kingdom of God. Can we please just talk about what's happening over there in Corinth? Can we talk about what's happening in Roman society? Or, or can we talk about who won the gladiatorial contest? Can we talk about what's happening on ESPN? Jesus goes, no. I want to talk about the kingdom of God. You know, according to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, you didn't know there was such a thing, did you? There are approximately 41,000 different, quote, Christian denominations throughout the world. 41,000, quote, different Christian denominations throughout the world. And so many are left with the question, which one of these 41,000 is the right one? Some have even given in to what we call church shopping. Where they go around and they kind of pick and choose what they like. And they go, this is the flavor that I prefer. And so I like this flavor of Christianity or I like that flavor of Christianity. It's the Burger King form of the Bible. Have it your way right away. Amen. For so many, the idea of church has gotten so misconstrued. Instead of being about being the church, it's about going to church. For us as disciples, we understand that it's not about just finding a church that you like. It's about being the church that Jesus called us to be. You know, there was a guy that was discovered on a deserted island. And they walked up to him and they, they noticed as they were rescuing him that he had three different huts on his island. They go, why do you have three different huts on the island? He goes, well, that one right there, that's where I live. You go, okay, well, what about that one? He goes, that's where I go to church. Okay, Amen. Well, what, what about the third one over there? What's that hut for? He goes, well, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> and for so many, they can relate to that concept because it's about figuring out what church they want to be a part of. But we've got to be the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. In verse 8, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what the book of Acts is all about. In chapter 2, verse 5, we find that the disciples uh, began the church right there in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we find that they then spread to Judea and Samaria. And finally, in Acts 10, verse 34 and 36, finally the Holy Spirit directs the disciples to go to all nations to reach the ends of the earth. But the, at the end of the book of Acts, we find that Paul is under house arrest, and it's there under house arrest that Paul writes the book of Colossians. Let's turn briefly to Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. Let's see how far the disciples got with the gospel message. Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. This takes place about 30 years after the church was started right there in Acts 2. In verse 6 it says, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. And then in verse 23, he says, this is the gospel that you've heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature 
under heaven, and of which I, Paul, had become a servant. And so we find right here that the disciples embrace the Great Commission. And in just 30 years' time, the disciples took the gospel message, yes, to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, but ultimately they took it to the ends of the earth, and they reached every creature under heaven. You with me on that? Well, what does it mean to evangelize the world? Does it mean that every single person is going to become a disciple? No, it doesn't. Does it mean that every single person is going to go through the First Principles Bible study series? No. It just simply means that every creature under heaven has word, heard the word of God. Amen? You know, it's so exciting what's been happening here in 2022. Originally, we, we planned on planting 17 new churches in our movement. And through the Holy Spirit, we've actually ended up planting close to 30 churches this year. We've seen plantings in Bahrain. We've seen plantings in Berlin, Casablanca, Morocco, Cochabamba, Bolivia, Edinburgh, Scotland, Kampala, Uganda, Lviv, Ukraine, Naga, Philippines, Sao Carlos, Brazil, Stockholm, Sweden, Sucre, Bolivia, Taipei, Taiwan, Tijuana, Mexico, and Warsaw, Poland. Here in North America, we've seen Auburn, Alabama planted, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Delaware, Fresno, California, Iowa City, Iowa, Kansas City, Kansas, Louisville, Kentucky, Manchester, New Hampshire, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and Portland, Maine. God is moving. You with me here? But I think we've got to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean for us to really embrace the Great Commission? Well, back in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Well, the word witness right there in Greek is literally the word martis, which, as you can imagine, we get the English word martyr from. What does it take to embrace the Great Commission? You have to give up your life. And perhaps it means giving it up literally to spread the gospel to all nations. You know, this past week after First Principles, my wife and I were, were driving home, and we had Christina Kuko with us. We were taking her back home. And uh, she goes, hey, bro, are there any other churches in Canada? I go, well, sis, not, not currently at the moment, but we're, we're hoping that we can plant some soon. And then I, I decided to take the opportunity to ask her a question. I go, sis, are you ready to go? And there was silence in the back seat. I go, no, no, sis, seriously, are you, are you ready to go to, I don't know, maybe Vancouver? What about, what about Montreal? You, you speak French, don't you? She goes, mm, I don't know if I'm ready. And for a lot of us, isn't that the case? We talk about it. But if we really want to be a great church, we've got to be about it, and we've got to ask the question, if everyone were just like me, what kind of church would this be? Let's go to our second point, a great message. Let's go to Acts 2, verse 22. In verse 22, we find that the Holy Spirit has come down on the apostles, and Peter is the one that stands up to preach the word of God. And, of course, what was special about Peter? He was given the keys to the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's see what he preaches in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, 
And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. What a cranking church service, amen. You know, here we find that Peter is just preaching all about Jesus. That Jesus came down to earth. He lived a sinless life, amen to that. Remember how he didn't fall? He died on the cross for our sins. And he resurrected on the third day. See, the cross is not just a message of sadness. It's a message of victory. And yet Peter uses a word right here that I think is very interesting. He says, you guys, you guys, put him on the cross. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bank on your knowledge from first principles class that you remember that here in Jerusalem there were Jews from every nation under heaven. And so we know that they weren't physically there when Jesus died on the cross. They weren't the ones who physically put the nails in Jesus' wrists. You with me on that? And yet Peter uses the word you. Why? Because we understand that it's our sin that Jesus died for, and therefore everyone who has sin is responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. Well, the Bible says that they hear this, and they were cut to the heart. You know, I've got to ask you, does the message of the cross still cut you to the heart? And I was, I was moved even while Liz was sharing up here about her son, and she's in tears thinking about him dying in her womb. And then you think about God's feelings towards Jesus as he was putting him on the cross. And before he goes to the cross, Jesus goes, God, is there any other way? Let not my will, but your will be done. Does that still cut your heart? And you ask the question, what do I need to do? You know, for me, I remember when I was a kid, I had been given a Swiss Army knife. And I was fired up. I was about Chase's age, about 10 years old. And I happened to see in that same time period a movie that was playing on TV, which was The Bodyguard. Whitney Houston, Kevin Costner. Some of us older guys, we've seen it. Amen. How many of you guys have seen The Bodyguard? Amen. Where's this? this? There's this scene in the movie where they start to fall in love, and Whitney Houston's hanging out with her bodyguard, Kevin Costner. And she's in his, his little apartment or guest house. And she sees a samurai sword on his wall. And so she unknowingly, um, you know, because she didn't know how sharp this was and how dangerous it was, she takes it down and starts playing with the samurai sword. <laughs> well, he takes it away from her, and he has her, or he, he takes it from her, or has her hold it a certain way, and then he takes her scarf that she was wearing, which was just this light little lace thing, and he throws it up in the air, and it just kind of floats down. 
ever so subtly. And it touches the edge of the blade and just divides in two. And I remember watching this and I go, whoa. I want to make my pocket knife as sharp as that thing is. And so thankfully my dad had all kinds of tools in his little woodshed. And so I got his tools out and started sharpening my little pocket knife. And I think I did a fairly good job. It wasn't quite Kevin Costner level. But I got it pretty sharp. And one day while I was playing with my super sharp pocket knife, you know what happens when you play with sharp things? You get cut. I was playing with it, and it folded in on itself, and it cut my finger all the way down to the bone. I mean, it's just bleeding like crazy. And I remember being cut by my knife. And I was upset. And so I grabbed my little pocket knife that I would sharpened to spend all this time on, and I just picked it up, and I just, boom, threw it on the ground. It just broke to a bunch of different pieces. And I think that for many, many, many people, that's how they respond to the gospel message when they're cut. They, they get cut, it hurts. We're challenged and it hurts. And instead of embracing the challenge and saying, brothers, what shall we do? We get upset and we go, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to open my Bible. I don't want to go to your church no more. I don't want to study the Bible no more because it's just too hard. Peter goes, you got to repent. And get baptized. And the Bible says that 3,000 were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ that day. You with me on that? I mean, what a message. What a message that they responded to. Are you willing to respond to the gospel message? Are you willing to let the word of God cut you and say, brothers, what do we need to do? And are you willing to follow it through with becoming a sold-out disciple of Jesus Christ? Let's go to our third point. Not only did the disciples respond to the Great Commission, not only did they preach a great message, but they had a great impact. But we see right here that in verse 41, 3,000 responded to the word of God and were baptized. But we, we, we also know that the 3,000 didn't just accept the message and become churchgoers. Yes, they were baptized, but then they became baptizers. You with me on that? In fact, some critics of this scripture have said, man, this could not have happened. I mean, how in the world do you baptize 3,000 people in one day? And it's true, if it was just up to one or two people, it would be impossible. But they don't understand the principle of multiplication. That after you become a disciple, now you're not just a disciple, you're a disciple maker. Because that's what we do as disciples. We are fishers of men. And every tree that God has ever created, every animal that God has ever created, produces after itself. A banana tree produces bananas. An apple tree produces uh, apples. A cow produces cows. A horse produces horses. And disciples produce disciples. You with me on that? Well, let's see the impact of this first century church. In chapter 1, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering... About 120. Now, it's kind of cool, but just before this in verse 14, we find that his mother Mary and his brothers were numbered among the 120. Isn't that awesome right there? Why is it awesome? Because Jesus' mother at one point was persecuting Jesus. Yeah, the same mother that God appeared to and said, you will be impregnated by the Holy Spirit with Jesus the Messiah. The same mother that raised Jesus. And if you can imagine raising Jesus, you know how that would go, right? James comes up to you. Hey, Jesus hit me. <laughs> James, 
No, he didn't, James. What did you do, James? I mean, this was Mary. This was Mary. She persecuted Jesus in Mark chapter 3. She went to take charge of him because she said that she was out of his mind. And I put before you that if you're a disciple, you will receive the same type of persecution. Whether it come from your family or whether it come from your friends, you will be persecuted by following Jesus because Jesus was also persecuted. But he stayed faithful and he prioritized God's kingdom. In fact, he said, who are my mother and brothers? It's those that are seated around me. And we find in Acts 1 that his mother eventually comes around. You know, this is so special to me because when I first became a disciple, my mother also persecuted me. My older brother and I sat down with her. Yeah, we were, we were not as tactful as we should have been. We just thought that she would be as fired up to the message, about the message as we were. And sat down, sat down with my mom, and my mom had always been the spiritual one in our family. And we sat down with her and said, Mom, you wouldn't believe it. But everything we've been taught is false. We are not saved. You are not saved. We all need to repent. My mom was not having it. She goes, that may be true for you, but not for me. For seven years, we couldn't even bring up Christianity with my mom. She persecuted us. She accused us of being in a cult. And then eventually she goes, well, they're not in a cult, but I don't agree with them. But after seven years on Christmas morning, she refused to get out of bed until she became a disciple of Jesus. Three days later, my mom was baptized December 2008. Amen. And she's still faithful to this day. Amen. Let's give it up for my mom. Let's keep reading right here at Acts chapter 2, verse 40, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, we've got to ask ourselves right here, who is the they? Is it the 120 or is it the 3,000? All of them together. There was no distinguishing between the original 120 and the new 3,000 that were added. Every single disciple was sold out for Jesus Christ. Every single disciple was devoted to the apostles' teaching. Every single disciple was devoted to prayer. Every single disciple was committed. If everyone were just like me, what kind of church would this be? The Bible says, verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Yes, because when Jesus is your everything, you have everything in common with others whose Jesus is their everything. Amen. They sold property and possession to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. As we like to say, they were fired up. <laughs> Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Listen to this. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Isn't it interesting that the Bible says they were meeting daily? And the Lord was adding to their number daily? I mean, what, what does that imply? They were sharing their faith with one another daily. And the Lord was adding to their number daily. At this point, the church in Jerusalem was having daily baptisms. Over 365 people becoming disciples every year. Go on to verse 4 of chapter 4. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. 
I mean, they started off at 3,120. But now the Bible says the number of men grew to 5,000. That doesn't include the women. Amen? And we know that the sisters are more spiritual than the guys. So we have to conclude that the church was over 10,000. Amen? Chapter 5, verse 13. No one else dared join them. Even though they were highly regarded by the people, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. I love this scripture. No one dared join the disciples. Nevertheless, people keep on getting added to their number. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that was the sense. These people were freaking everybody out. They were scary in how committed they were. It was just such an incredible, impactful group that people were terrified of it. And yet at the same time, they couldn't keep away from it. Amen. Chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing. Well, those days how it needs to be how it is in these days. Amen. Chapter, chapter 6, verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Aren't you guys excited when we start not just converting people, but converting other preachers? This is a message that's going to get, yes, to the other people, yes, to the other churches, but even to other preachers. Chapter 9, verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in number. Chapter 14, verse 1. you got to keep up with me. I know we went through first principles and you memorized where everything's at. Now you got to keep up. Chapter 14, verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a what? A great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Chapter 14, verse 21. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Chapter 16, verse 5, 4 5. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew what? Daily in numbers. Now it was not just the church in Jerusalem that was growing daily. But now even the Gentile churches were starting to grow daily in numbers. Is that awesome? Finally, chapter 17, verse 6. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Revised Standard Version, these are the men who have turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. You know, I really want to lift up the church here in Toronto. I mean, God has been doing amazing things, has he not? In fact, in just the last six weeks, we've seen nine baptized into Jesus Christ. And I believe that there will come a point next year where we will reach weekly baptisms. And once we reach weekly baptisms and see 52 baptized into Christ in a year, the next thing for us is daily baptisms. 365 baptisms a year, amen. But you've got to understand. That to have this type of impact, a great impact, it takes 
great faith. You know, it was so encouraging. I, I got an email a couple days ago, and I already shared about how we were trying to plant 17 churches this year, and the Holy Spirit has allowed us to plant somewhere close to 30. But, but even this past week, there was a small group of Church of Christ preachers in Cuba who heard about what was going on and said, hey, I want to become a part of this. They came out. They asked Jared and Rachel McGee from Florida to go down and study the Bible with them. They studied the Bible, and now we have a remnant group, a church in Cuba. Amen, church? See, i got to ask you, if everyone were just like me, what kind of church would this be? Let's go to our fourth point, great power. Great power. Acts chapter 4, verse 5. You know, in chapter 3, we find that, that Peter heals a crippled beggar named Beautiful. Now, I don't know why uh, your parents didn't call you Beautiful. But this particular person was named Beautiful. And as he sees Peter and, and John preaching, he goes, can you please give me some money? But Peter and John were like most of us who are in the ministry in our day and age. They go, silver and gold we do not have. <laughs> but what I have, I give you. And then they take him and they heal him and bring him back up to his feet. Is that awesome right there? Well, sadly, the, the whole town gathers because of this miracle. And Peter starts preaching about Jesus. Well, this is awesome except for the fact that the religious people of his generation did not agree with his message. And so in chapter 4, we find that they're brought before the Sadducees and the temple guard, and brought them before the Sanhedrin. And so chapter, chapter 4, verse 5, we'll pick it up here. The next day the rulers and the elders of the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. And as the high priest was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the others of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind, by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. You know, we find right here that the Sanhedrin was questioning Peter and John. And you can understand that Sanhedrin was made up of 70 of all the Jewish best and brightest. This was the most cranking group of people in all of Jerusalem. And this is who Peter and John were being questioned by. And they simply go, by what power or what name did you do this? And Peter goes, if we are being called out today because we healed somebody, then let you know this. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Woo! I mean, this is intense. This is the same Peter that denied Jesus just days earlier to a little servant girl. 
And now he's standing before the most powerful people in all of Jerusalem. And he's preaching the word of God. The Bible says that when they saw Peter and John and their courage, they took note that they were unschooled and ordinary men. Well, in the Greek, the word ordinary right there is the word idiote. Which you know which word we get in English? Idiots. And so in other words, the Sanhedrin is looking at them like there's nothing special about these guys. I mean, they're just unschooled idiots. But men are they bold. Men are they powerful. Men are they filled with courage. And they go, they must have spent time with Jesus. Why? Because when you spend time with Jesus, you're given great power. You know, I believe that one of the, the cultural sins in Canada is timidity. Passivity. We're so scared of making waves. We're so scared of, of hurting someone's feelings. We're so scared of causing friction. We just want to get along with everybody. You know, Kelly and I were on our date last night, and we were talking to a girl who just moved here from Ireland, and prayerfully she's going to come out to church in two weeks. Amen? And she was telling us that she was shocked when she got here because she saw on the buses, whenever the bus is not available, it says not in service, but before it, it says Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, not in service. She goes, even the buses are apologizing in Canada. <laughs> and, and isn't that how we are? We're so timid. And I think we need to have a deep conviction that timidity is not spiritual. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the Bible says that God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of what? Power, love, and self-discipline. If you're not full of boldness, then you're not really walking with Jesus. And when you're really walking with Jesus, you'll be filled with great power to preach the word of God. But at this point, the Sanhedrin confers together. And they go, how do we, how do we stop this thing? How do we stop this cult? How do we stop this group of people that call themselves well, they decide that they would just command the Christians to stop preaching. <laughs> this is amazing. All of the best and brightest minds in all of Jerusalem come together. And they go, okay, we've got to figure this out. We've got to stop this thing. This is what we're going to do. We're going to teach them or command them not to preach any longer. And you know what's incredible? Is that would have actually worked. Right? Th their idea, if if actually was held to would have worked how do you get christianity to stop the christians just stop preaching well chapter 4 verse 19 let's see what hap happens after the, the disciples get this command from the sanhedrin but peter and john replied which is right in god's eyes to listen to you or to him you be the judges as for us we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God. But what had happened? For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On the release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together and prayed to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, your father, Dave, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? 
the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Harris and Pontius Pilate met together with all the Gentiles of the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand and heal and perform signs and wonders throughout the name of the Holy Servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God boldly. You know what I appreciate about Peter's prayer right here? Is amidst this giant trial, amidst this challenging circumstance, being commanded by the authorities not to preach. Peter doesn't pray for the circumstance to change. He doesn't go, God, please stop these people from persecuting us. He doesn't say, stop the Sanhedrin from commanding us not to preach. Please stop the persecution. He goes, give us the boldness and the faith that we need to keep on preaching the word of God. You know, I've got to ask you, what kind of things do you pray for? Do you pray for the challenges to stop? The situation to change? You know, my experience as a disciple, I, I've learned that everybody has what, I, what I've, I've now come to realize is called my situation. Like, bro, 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 you, you don't understand my situation. I mean, I, I would do that and I would repent, but, but, but my, my situation. And in their mind, their situation is such a big thing. It hinders them from actually following God. My situation. Isn't it funny that everybody has a my situation? Well, has your situation stopped you from preaching the word of God? Has your situation stopped you from obeying the word of God? It's so challenging. You know what's funny is, is how some Christians look at other people's my situation and go, that's nothing. But then those same Christians that they think are, look at their situation and go, that's nothing. Everybody feels challenged by their situation. That's the thing. It doesn't matter what the situation is. Some people have what some perceive as an easy situation, and some people have a more challenging situation. But everybody feels the same way about their situation. The question is, do you have the faith and the boldness to obey the Lord despite your situation? If everyone were just like me, what kind of church would this be? I don't know, everybody, if everybody gave into their situation, what kind of church would this be? You see, we've got to have great power. And the way you get great power is not by praying for your circumstance to change, but by pulling close to God and praying for God to empower you. Through a spirit with the boldness and the faith that you need to overcome any and every situation. Let's go to our point number five. Number five, great examples. Let's go to chapter four. In Acts chapter four, verse 32, we find an incredible example. The Bible says, all the believers were in one heart and mind. And that's how the disciples need to be today. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything that they had. Campus disciples go, amen. 
the married people with all the food and stuff go, oh, amen. <laughs> with great power. Here it is again. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them. That there were no needy persons from among them. From, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. And brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. You know, I appreciate Kirk's contribution about the different reasons why people don't give. But I think there's an additional reason. Sometimes we don't trust how our money's being used. I don't know. I saw Evan and Kelly. He bought a new T-shirt. Did he use my contribution to buy that shirt? I mean, Evan and Kelly living in a gigantic mansion. Did they use our contribution? All $3 of our contribution for their rent? You know what? Here's the fact. Maybe your church leadership abuses your contribution. But what does that have to do with you and God? You see, if we're abusing contribution, God will hold us to account. You with me on that? But that doesn't change our heart to lay the money at the apostles' feet and say, hey, God, you do what you're going to do. See, my wife and I give contribution too. We don't decide how the money in the movement gets used. But we trust that God is in control and therefore, we lay our money at the apostles' feet and know that God is going to do great things with it. Verse 36. Yeah, you guys can clap. There's like a few people. <laughs> what happened? What happened? We're losing steam throughout our service here. You know, it's one thing to be, it's one thing to be fired up for a week or two weeks. It's a whole other thing to finish the race as a disciple. And I'm questioning whether you can finish the race if you can't even finish a church service fired up. In verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the disciples, whom the apostles called Barnabas. No, we got to stop right there. Here's this guy, Joseph, and the, the, the apostles go, you know, this guy's awesome. We're going to give him a nickname, Barnabas. Which literally means son of encouragement. Right? You gotta understand what's going on right here. They go, this guy is so encouraging. He's so encouraging. He must be the son of encouragement. I mean, this, this can't just be him. This has got to be like in his DNA. Encouragement. We're going to call him the son of encouragement. Barnabas. Do we have any sons or daughters of encouragement this morning? I mean, some of y'all, some of y'all walked in a little sketched out this morning. You, you walked in, you walked in with the gimme mindset. Gimme, 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 look at me, look at me, look at me, come give me, come give me, encourage me, help me, inspire me, tell me what I'm doing awesome, me, 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 me. The demon of meanness has taken over you. 
it's encouragement in your DNA. So we don't come to church to be encouraged. That's not a disciple thing. Disciples come to church to encourage. Now, here's the thing. When everybody comes to church to encourage, does everybody get encouraged? Absolutely. But when everybody comes to church and goes, me, 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 then nobody gets encouraged. If everyone were just like me, what kind of church would this be? You know, I think, without a doubt, one of the guys that I think is such a son of encouragement is Harvey Weaver. And you know, it's interesting because Joseph's methodology of encouragement right here was he sold his entire property and just laid it at the apostles' feet. And I go, wow, Harvey's got the same type of heart. You know, Harvey at 64 years old, gets off work, goes fundraising. Nobody asked him to. Nobody is, in fact, there's been people that have tried to talk him out of doing this. Like, hey, bro, please just go home after work. Go get some rest, bro. Like, please take it easy. He goes, no, I just want to raise money and contribute what I can to God's kingdom. And so consistently, although he already gives a very healthy contribution, he goes out fundraising so he can give even more. Well, let's see the opposite of Joseph. Let's go to chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. I mean, this is awesome. He's imitating Barnabas with his wife's full knowledge. So were they unified? Yeah, what an incredible marriage. I mean, they are completely and totally unified. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for, uh-oh, himself. But brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? You could have done what you wanted to. What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to human beings, but you've lied to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up in his body, carried him out, and buried him. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine being one of those young brothers that walk into the room? Hey, Peter, jump. Bro, he missed his contribution. I mean, he made a pledge, but he kept back a portion for himself. I guarantee you that those brothers didn't miss their contribution ever again. <laughs> verse 5. Oh, sorry, verse 7. About three hours later, his wife came in, knowing what had happened. Peter asked him, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. <laughs> then the young men, I think it was the same ones, like, Yeah. 
Bro, I do not want to be discipled by Peter. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You know, it's amazing that these two were, were completely and totally unified. But they were unified in their disobedience. You know, this is a true principle. That when someone decides not to obey God, they will always find themselves friends with others who decide not to obey God. This is why the Bible says Herod and Pilate became friends the night that Jesus was sentenced to die. They hated each other probably. But in their willful disobedience, they became friends. Like, oh, you don't like Kelly either? Oh, yeah. <laughs> let's, sit, let's sit down. Let's talk. Let's have coffee. Let's talk about how terrible Kelly is. Whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're bitter at Cody and Margie. You know, I, I wasn't sure who I could talk to. But I can see that you're a friend that I can talk to. And I just, I just need to get it out. I just need to, like, really have some friends that I can connect to that think and feel the same way that I do. Do you have any sin buddies? Do you have any sin buddies where you've conspired in disobedience? You know, it's amazing. The Bible says that great fear sees the whole church. You know, why would God do this? <laughs> the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime in some ways. Miscontribution. I, I still gave a big chunk of what I got from my house. Okay. When Exodus 20, verse 20, the Bible simply says, the fear of the Lord will keep you from sinning. And sometimes I think God has to remind us who he is so that we understand how important it is for us to live a righteous life. You know, I really got to ask you, how are you doing your contribution? I think Kirk did a fantastic job talking about it. But there are some of us that week after week after week, we, we don't give what we pledge to give. And you may have your my situation. But at the end of the day, if you prioritize God's kingdom first, then there's no reason that you should ever miss your contribution. In fact, in Psalms 15, the Bible says, he who keeps an oath even when it hurts. You have a heart to give even when it hurts. Let's move on right here. Let's go to our last point. I'm oh, sorry, second to last point. I got another one. You know, and not only was Joseph a great example of what to do, and Ananias and Sapphira are a great example of what not to do. There are many young Christians who stepped up. Go to chapter 6, verse 1. You guys with me here? In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, that's the Grecian Jews, complained against the Hebraic Jews. Those are like the original Jews. 
the Jews. Like, they didn't convert to Judaism. They were the OGs. Like, we were here first. We were here first. We ain't going to take care of you. That's how some of us older Christians can be with the younger Christians. Like, how dare you think that we're not committed? We were here first. Long before you were even a thought in your mom's mind, we were here as disciples. How dare you question our commitment? We can, we can have that attitude too, do we not? It says their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. This is kind of a big deal. Uh, you know, I hate to bring this up, but you know our widows, husbands died recently. Um, yeah, when you guys gave everybody food, you didn't give any to them. Verse 2, so the 12 gathered together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word of God. This proposal pleased the whole group. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Let's skip down to chapter 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man Full of God's grace and power. Isn't that interesting? That he was known to be full of the Spirit. And then it says he was full of God's grace and power. See, when you're spiritual, you're powerful. He performed great signs and wonders among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Ironic. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue to Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses. God, Moses. And against God. Verse 12. They said to the people and the elders of the teachers of the law, they seized Stephen and brothers of Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place, against the law. For we heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Kind of like Dylan. I mean, just look at Dylan's face. Minus the peach fuzz that he's got there. It's just, you, you take all that away, Photoshop that out of the picture. I mean, he's got the, the face of an angel. I mean, Issa thinks so. Now, at times, she believes it's a fallen angel. But it really depends on the day. Amen? Chapter 7, verse 51. Here's Peter, or here's Stephen preaching the word. And this is how he decides to close the lesson. Because, you know, you always want to end off in an inspirational and exciting way. He goes, you stiff-necked people. Your, ear, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received a law that was given through the angels but had not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. I mean, I don't really know what that means. That's just kind of how I thought of it. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, 
looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears. And isn't that how some religious people are? I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me anymore. I don't want to know. They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him away out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. I mean, this is incredible. Here we find the first Christian martyr. You see, what does it take to preach the Great Commission? What does it take to be a witness? You've got to be a martyr, a martyr. In a literal sense or in a spiritual sense. And literally, Stephen gave his life. You know, this is an incredible example. And yet I think the question has to be asked, why was Stephen such a great example? Well, notice right here, as he's being stoned, some things that, that may seem familiar. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Who else said that? Well, Jesus said that. Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Who else said that? Jesus. You see, Stephen was a great example because he followed a great example. And when you follow a great example, ultimately Jesus' example, you're going to be a great example as well. Now, it's kind of interesting. The Bible says that Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You know, in every other instance where the Bible says Jesus is at God's right hand, the Bible records that Jesus is sitting. And yet right here as Stephen is being stoned, the first Christian martyr, Jesus is standing, watching him being stoned as if to give a salute to the first Christian martyr. Let's close out this morning in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, great persecution broke out against the church of Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. And Saul began destroying the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip, then he saw the signs that performed and all that paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many people. Kind of like what happened with Esau when she got baptized. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. You know, our last point this morning is great joy. You see, when you have a great commission, you have a great message. When you have great examples, a great impact, great boldness, and great power, then you're going to have great joy in your heart. And the Bible says, although there was persecution, everywhere the disciples went, they spread the word of God. And many people came to Christ. Amen to that? In fact, you could say that Philip was a one-man evangelism mission team. He goes to Samaria all by himself. 
And great things were happening through Philip. And the Bible says that there was great joy in that city. You know, I believe that as we continue to build Jesus' church, then we will indeed build a great church. And when you build a great church, there is great joy in the church. Why? Because the Bible says in Acts 3.19 that where there's repentance, there's refreshment. Amen? If you're not full of joy this morning, you know what the issue is. Isn't that awesome? You just got to repent. Amen? You're walking not fired up today? Guess what? Just got to repent. It comes down to you. No, 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 my, my situation. No, stop that. It's not your situation. It's your heart. That's your situation. And when you decide to repent and follow God, you will have great joy. And as a disciple church, we will have great joy in the church. You with me on that? If everyone was just like me, what kind of church would this be? You know, in closing, I think we need to consider ourselves to ourselves. What can one man do? You can see right here in the example of Stephen, he could have great impact. In the example of Philip who went down to Samaria all by himself and preached the word of God. What can one man do? What can a church full of sold out disciples of Jesus do? If everyone were just like me, what kind of church would we be? You see, Jesus had a great commission. They preached a great message. They had great impact. They spoke with great boldness. They caused great fear. They overcame great obstacles because they had great power. They were led by great examples, great leaders who made great sacrifices. They suffered great loss. But at the end of the day, they were filled with great joy. Jesus' church will always be a great church. And so, brothers and sisters, let us strive to build Jesus' church. Because as we strive to build Jesus' church, we will indeed build a great church here in Toronto. I love you guys. God bless.